Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cave of the Cross Projects. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony. And we're on to the uh, ultimate of the chapters that we've been waiting for. <laughs> Chapter 9 uh, of Scott Christensen's book, What About Evil? Yeah, this is this one is big because he tries to, I mean, now he has to wrestle with this idea of, you know, <laughs> yeah. no more is blaming God other people? responsible? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so um, uh, we're covering Chapter 9, The Challenge of Moral Responsibility. And so... Uh, again, uh, chapter eight, he's laying the foundation for uh, showing God as uh, transcendent above uh, human thought, above his creation, and that lays the foundation for um, this this chapter and also some questions that come up uh, about it. So uh, the, the idea is that um, God brings about uh, uh, good through every single evil and how do we come about that? And what are some of the issues that may arise? The, the, the typical questions that, that yeah. come out about this. So basically, you know, if God allows evil, does that make God responsible for evil? Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it, this is something I think a lot of people like to get the sound bites in without considering <laughs> or giving a fair shake. And I think it's done on, on both sides of the equation for, yeah. for that. Cause sometimes it's easier just to make fun of uh, the other side rather than, deal legitimately and try and steal man arguments so um so hopefully we we um we do a a good job of presenting the did you say steal man or straw man well steel man we we try to steal man oh i see the argument (laughs) we don't want a straw man uh and so he um he kind of uh uh starts off with uh one of the uh the other good stories of the modern era, the, the, that would be uh, the, the Godfather. And he says uh, that many accuse the Calvinist God of being a divine Don Corleone. Free will theists charge reform theology with depicting God in ex- exceptionally dignified tones, even though at the same time he dictates who is and who isn't viciously rubbed out. <laughs> I think mixing a little 20s and 30s gangster with, uh, with, with uh, the... 40s, 50s. Perhaps he refrains from blooding his own hands, but how does that distinguish him from an ordinary crime boss, right? I've never killed anybody. I've just, you know, Hitler never killed anybody, but all of a sudden we all want to blame Hitler for everything. (laughs) How can he be exonerated from being the blameworthy instigator of evil? Yeah. Sounds like a really good episode of a crime drama. (laughs) So, and that's the central issue with regard to this particular chapter, right? How is God... You know, is God culpable for all the evil if indeed he's ultimately in charge, right? right? He says that sufficient uh, indicators demonstrate that God can sovereignly order the course of evil in this world without being culpable, that is, blamable, right, for uh, wrongdoing. Sinister charges, he tells us, of malevolence uh, concerning the divine character utterly fail. God, he says, bears no fault whatsoever, he is meticulously sovereign over every instance of evil, but remains emphatically free from being charged with guilt for it. So he says, let's examine the case for this bold assertion. Mm-hmm. Right. right. <laughs> uh, so starting on page uh, 202 here, we have the transcendent author of evil. So the providential model of God as the transcendent author of history as we covered in chapter seven, presents an analogy by which God can easily be sovereign over evil without being morally culpable for it. But we must first dispense with the pejorative connotation of the word author, like author of evil, as assumed when discussing God and the problem of evil. So he says that, uh, that while the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith has tithipi, 
uh, towards the term, uh, saying that God is not the author of sin, we should note that the reasonableness of this assertion gives, given the historical context of mid-17th century theology. So it's, it's dealing with kind of the words uh, that were used then, and so we shouldn't um, anarchistically uh, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, read back into uh, what we kind of assume that that means. Right. So the Westminster uh, divines meant to indicate that God is not to be justifiably blamed for sin. He bears no moral responsibility for evil. He is not the doer of evil. Right. So he's saying that's what they meant by saying that uh, mm-hmm. God is not the author of sin. Right. Yeah. He isn't. He doesn't bear the moral responsibility. Now, he moves from the Westminster, um, you know, confession to uh, John Frame, right? the theologian John Frame. Right. And he says John Frame draws out the analogy by pointing to Shakespeare. Right? So how does Shakespeare help us? <laughs> right? He says, well, when the famous playwright authors Macbeth, right, when he writes Macbeth, he uh, notice he authors Macbeth. He stands outside the story as the ultimate cause of everything taking place inside the story. And this includes the unsavory, unsavory portions of the story. Right. right. So Shakespeare is outside of the story. But, you know, he is, uh, uh, you know, ultimately the cause of everything that's in the story. And so he says there are two then complete causal chains and every event in Macbeth has two causes, two sets of necessary and sufficient conditions, the causes within the play itself and the intentions of Shakespeare. Right. 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 So, so uh, Ophelia doesn't kill herself. Shakespeare does. So that's not a suicide. It's a murder. It's a murder by the author. (laughs) Well, Well, it's kind of bull. Yeah. 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 Um, and and I, I like his uh, his assertion uh, from Jonathan Edwards here. He says that if by the author of sin be meant the sinner, the agent or actor of sin, or the doer of wicked thing, so it would be a reproach and blasphemy to suppose God to be the author of sin. In this sense, I utterly deny God to be author of sin. But if it is the author of sin is meant to perm- the permitter or not the hinderer of sin, and at the same time a disposer of the state of events in such a manner for wise, holy, and most excellent ends of purpose, that sin, if it be permitted or not hindered, very, very, this is a Jonathan Edwards sentence that has 72 commas. Uh, so he goes on to say, I, I say this if it be meant by being author of sin, I don't deny that God is the author of sin, though I dislike and reject the phrase. Mm. And so, again, here's Edwards dealing with that type of what is, what is author of sin mean here. Yeah. And, and so uh, we're going to kind of uh, cover that a, a little bit more um, here. So, so in one sense, a Shakespeare made Macbeth kill Duncan, right? He, he, he not sat at his typewriter, but sat in his quill and, and ink <laughs> and, and penned it out. So Shakespeare is the one that made Macbeth kill Duncan. Made with quotes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we don't attribute moral culpability to Shakespeare for Duncan's death. That belongs to Macbeth. So, uh, you know, it's been a while since I've read Macbeth, but, you know, why did he do it? He had reasons, and it fit within the structure of the story. Uh, You know, he didn't suddenly grow a laser out of his hand and start shooting Duncan. Well, why would that be? Well, that's that's outside, uh, you know, the the character and scope of of the story. And if we were to read that, we would go, well, this this is someone's, like, uh, uh, um, you know, Pen, penned in work, uh, you know, f- fan fiction of, of Macbeth. Doesn't, uh, doesn't belong, it doesn't fit with M- Macbeth's character. 
uh, the primary agent, the author, is not liable for the crime. Rather, the secondary agent or the actor is. So uh, Shakespeare isn't is the primary agent. He's not liable for the crime of, of making Macbeth the, the killer. Right. Macbeth is the killer. Right. It's not. Yeah. We, we, we don't attribute that to, to uh, Shakespeare, even though he wrote it. Thus, seeing God's transcendence as analogous to the transcendence of an author considerably loosens the tension that Scripture presents between his meticulous sovereignty and his impeccable goodness. So So this kind of takes away some of the tension, right? It's, you know, he uses this analogy to kind of help us to see how God could be the author and yet not the one who is blameworthy, who is culpable. Right. Of what happens, yeah. right? In the same way that an author writes, but the character in the story does the action. Mm-hmm. So God, who is the author, right, the ultimate one in charge, doesn't do the action. It's the person that does the action. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and so that, that's where you kind of get the disingenuous of like, oh, well, I'm just doing what, what God has made me do. <laughs> well, no, that's no. not what we're talking yeah, about. Right. And, and so... We need to to make sure we we have our our, our structure of, of our play uh, in mind when we do that. So right. yeah, no, well, actually, you're doing it because your nature is such in the same way that Macbeth's nature caused him to do it, mm-hmm. not that Shakespeare, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, but like all analogies, all analogies fail. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, these are just uh, ca- uh, characters on the page that that uh, have yeah. no moral agency or something. Well, sure, right. All analogies fail, and whether here in theology, uh, philosophy, whatever it might be. Yes, it's not a. I, I always I could not stand thing, that when yeah. I when I talk to people and and they were like, "Well, it doesn't really mean this in the in in this situation, right?" It's analogy. It's to help you get to thinking like here here is an example of something where we have two authors of things: an author of action, and an author who uh, writes the entire story. So that's what we're talking about here. So Shakespeare is absolutely transcendent with respect to his literary creation. None of the characters in his plays have any idea that they are creations of his trans of a transcendent author. Shakespeare stands completely outside of stories. This is not true of God. God is not marked by absolute transcendence. He is both transcendent and imminent. He is independent of his creation, yet at the same time, he is part of the story he has crafted. In fact, he is its primary actor. Right, he's the central actor in the story. Right. So that makes him different than, you know, it was as if Shakespeare goes into the story and, you know, right. becomes there the are hero. Good, good sci-fi yeah. uh, you know, uh, novels and shows that do yeah. that. Yeah, and so he says there's, uh, you know, there's no reason to think that because God, though, necessarily participates in the historical plot that he has authored, somehow he is automatically, you know, implicated in the evil just because he participates. That would be the case only if he had evil intentions for the evil he writes into the plot or if he himself, you know, acted evilly yeah. in the course of his action and unfolding the plot. Yeah, it's, right? it's that, almost a, a, a meta story. So yeah, Shakespeare yeah. stood back and was like, I'm going to do the worst thing ever. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And then he goes in the story and does it. And does it. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. God never decrees evil for evil's sake, nor can he do any evil. So it's interesting here now. And we see the first inkling of this issue with regard to what makes something evil and he says that it would be the case only if God had evil intentions for the evil he writes into the plot. And so he's going to, this 
intention is going to do a lot of work for him in this chapter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And so moving on, as God is the deficient cause of evil, he says that the point has been made that God's relationship to good and evil is asymmetrical and not symmetrical at all. He stands behind good in a more direct way and behind evil in an indirect way and in some senses of a, pa- a passive way. He mm-hmm. allows it to happen. Right. God can never be the efficient cause of evil. Augustine states, uh, quote, the, the truth is that one should not try to find an efficient cause for a wrong choice. It is not a matter of efficiency, but of a deficiency. The evil will itself is not efficient, but deficient. To try to discover the causes of such defections, deficient, not efficient causes, is like trying to see darkness or hear silence. So uh, uh, kind of like the idea of uh, the, the sun uh, yeah. is, is what he gives. Right. In fact, that's the, the illustration that Jonathan yeah. Edwards is going to use, right? The idea here is, um, you know, the sun doesn't, cause directly the dark right that's right? <laughs> oh, right. so dark in here yeah, yeah. I, I wish the sun wouldn't do that yeah. we, we don't we don't say right, that right but it does is a responsible for the dark in some way right mm-hmm. he says jonathan Edwards, you know makes this similar point with a powerful analogy where he compares the nature and action of god you know to that of the sun the sun is not the efficient cause of cold and darkness but the deficient cause right it's it's a result of the sun not being there mm-hmm. so it's deficient it's not efficient right and he says so it is with god and evil so he says there's a vast difference between the sun's being the cause of the lightsomeness this is edward speaking right and warmth of the atmosphere and it's being the occasion of darkness and frost in the night. So it's the occasion of darkness, but it's not, you know, the cause directly of the darkness, right? right? The motion of the sun, uh, Edwards tells us, is the occasion of the latter kind of events, darkness, but it's not the proper cause, efficient or producer of them. Though they are necessarily the consequence of the motion of the sun, you know, under the circumstances. Uh, no more is any action of the divine being that is God, the cause of evil in men's wills, right? So he's making this analogy here between God and the Son and the efficient and deficient cause. Well, you know, if it just wasn't for the Son, we wouldn't even know what, what light or warmth is, and so we should just be in darkness and coldness. That, that's what <laughs> should happen. So moral responsibility tied to intentions is, is uh, kind of what... Um, um, is is a big focus on on this to to get to the kind of the main point of of um, viewing men as responsible for the evils they do, but God not responsible. So one of the most important considerations, shining light, like the sun, on why <laughs> God cannot be charged with evil, concerns the moral intentions that stand behind evil. Scripture never connects moral responsibility to free will theism's notion of contrary choices as enshrined in libertarian view of free will. I think that's an important point. We, I, I think we, we saw that too uh, with William Lane Craig's um, um, argument, debate, conversation with James White, where, uh, you know, James White said, um, so the apostles were Molinists. He's like, no, absolutely not, because he sees a system which works well within the scope that doesn't kind of fully contradict Scripture. It gives him a good working basis for his... his um, view of both theology and more so his philosophy. James White says that um, the, the kind of the reform perspective reads out of scripture and 
as presuppositions, we we like that as well. Reads out of scripture what what would be known by the the authors and understood by them, and so um, scripture kind of never talks about moral responsibility in the same fashion that free will advocates present. Mm-hmm. Instead, it uniformly ties moral responsibility to two criteria. The first criteria is knowledge of good and evil. Romans 1 and 2 decisively argues that humanity intuitively knows the moral law of God written on their hearts, while the, their conscience alerts them to whether their actions violate or upholds that law. And that's right. Romans 2. So, so, they, so they have the knowledge of right. good and evil, right? And right. So that's part of the moral responsibility. You know what the right thing to do is mm-hmm. or not to do. Right. And then your conscience tells you when you do right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And so e- even those those pathetic heathens out in the world that you decry, you know what? They make laws and they hold each other to them and they say, you violated this. But what, you know, in, in a world devoid of meaning and, and objectivity, so who cares? Yeah. So, so I There's violated no this, this, honor among this thing. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, also the Jews who are calling these people barbarians, you also do this. Yeah. And you're even more culpable because you have you, know. you, yeah. you, you have the objective law. Yeah. Thus, they are always intuitively know, uh, they also intuitively know that they stand accountable to God, who is just who is their just and holy judge. Mm-hmm. That's Romans 132. Yeah. The second uh, criteria is, and crucially, moral culpability is tied to the intentions of the heart. Right. And so there it is here. It has to do with the intentions of the heart. He Very says, romantic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he says, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because at the core of our being, we are sinners, Mm -hmm. right? This means that a good heart must be made or more precisely remade, right? Because we're sinners. And so in order for our heart to be good, it has to be transformed. It has to be regenerated. It has to be remade. Thus, when God uh, considers one's uh, morally responsible actions, he looks at the intentions, right? The motives, the fundamental desires and affections of the heart that drive our words and our actions, which in turn defy the holy God to whom we will uh, give an account. So it's the intention, it's the motives, it's the desires. That's why, you know, um, covetousness is a sin, right? Because it has to do with our desire. Even though we don't do any action, we our desire is against what God wants, and that is sin. And any man who looks on a, a woman with lust commits adultery in the heart. Mm-hmm. So it's like he does the same thing. Anyone who hates their brother is murdering him in the same fashion. Right. So right. Uh, the the um, the motives, the outside. intentions, yeah. you know, the fundamental desires, mm-hmm. the affections of the heart, that is the source of sin. Yeah. Right. And, and and look what he tells uh, Cain uh, before killing Abel. If if you do not flee from the sin, uh, you know it, it will overtake you. And so he's it's, it's, uh, Cain is sitting on it and he's perpetuating it and he's th- uh, you know um, uh, co- coveting what his brother has. And ultimately, that ends in an act uh, an outward expression of that action. So right. it's like, well, you know, why does he care what happens in my head? Because in the head is also what it w- will eventually happen yeah, out, yeah. outside of And not only that, even if it doesn't, it's still well, wrong. <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> you know, yes. uh, uh, Proverbs 16.2 says, All the ways of man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives, mm-hmm. right? The Lord weighs the heart. So the Lord is looking at our heart, 
not necessarily out of our actions. And, you know, out of the heart of these various issues, Jesus says, comes, mm-hmm. right? All the evils that we have come out of the heart. So if the heart is dirty, the whole thing is dirty, right? If the eye is cloudy, the whole person is, is cloudy mm-hmm. kind of thing. That's also why we're told to take drastic actions. If your sin, co- or if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Right. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. <laughs> why? Because it's that serious. Because those that that small turns into big, and uh, you know sometimes I think we can we can oh you know it's just this little thing, and then it festers and yeah. that little thing. Well, yeah, and he's talking about you know the the we should take this drastic action because of how bad sin is. Mm -hmm. Sin is utterly bad. Yeah. Uh, So then, moving on to uh, kind of a a big question when it comes to this, and maybe heard heard about it in the 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 topic of the conversation with us, but uh, does ought imply can? So one of the objections to the scenario painted here concerns human beings' moral ability. Free will theists frequently suggest that if God places moral obligations on us, things that we ought to do, then we must have the freedom and power to meet those obligations. Otherwise, our moral responsibility is eviscerated. We just right. don't have it. Right. So, you know, if, we're, if we ought to do the, these things and ought not to do these things, then one would suggest that we're able to. Right. If that's, you know, if we have a moral responsibility to do this, then we should be able to. If we have a moral response. So the problem is, it's argued, if we have a moral responsibility, but we're not able, then we really don't have the responsibility because we're not able to carry it out with the, with the, that's the art, you know, how the argument would go. Mm -hmm. Right. He's not, he's suggesting that is not the case. Right. Right. So thus, uh, ought implies can. Right. If we ought to obey the moral commands of God, then it's only fair that we be constituted so that we can obey them. This perspective implies that freedom to obey or disobey, i.e. the exercise of libertarian freedom, is necessary for moral responsibility. Yeah. So he asks, how does the Calvinist respond to this, right? Because obviously the Calvinist is suggesting that, you know, uh, our hearts are so messed up that we can't obey the law of God, right? And so if we can't, why are we responsible for Mm -hmm. it, right? Moral obligations, he tells us, do not require, and here's the answer, moral obligations do not require moral ability. Mm -hmm. That's that's the answer, right? Nor does an inability to redress moral wrongs exempt one from the just demands and penalties of the law, Mm -hmm. right? And he gives us an illustration. Suppose someone breaks into the museum in Paris and steals Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece, the Mona Lisa, and then lights it on fire in front of the Eiffel Tower. Horror of horrors, right? Just give a few years. (laughs) Who knows, you know, how to calculate the loss of such a priceless piece of historical art? Mm -hmm. Hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, right? In either case, notice it is unlikely that the perpetrator would have the means to repay the loss, Right. right? right? So does that... And, you know, so the question then is... Right. So since the perpetrator would have no ability to repay or redress the loss of the masterpiece, does this exempt him from being liable for the crime? Yeah. Well, he can't repay it. So, no, he's yeah. not, you know, he's not responsible for, for the loss of it. Right. Right. Because he doesn't have the ability to repay it. Is that what we want to say? I don't mm-hmm. think we want to say that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, the, the judge has sentenced me to six lifetime, uh, <laughs> can, uh, uh, you know, uh, t- time in jail uh, for the six murders I committed. 
I can't serve six lifetimes. I'm free to go. <laughs> Good. Well, of course not. His liability is tied to the vile intentions he had in stealing and destroying the Mona Lisa or the murders, uh, and not to whether he had the ability to redress his crime. The principles here hold true in biblical uh, models of justice. Our moral responsibility is not tied to whether we can obey the law of God. The fact is we cannot. Even our best deeds as unregenerate sinners are like filthy rags. Right. It's almost like we need something more. Yeah, yeah, right. All right, so then he, he uh, uh, moves on then to now directly tie this to God, right? The good intentions of God. And he says, the moral intentions of human beings created in the image of God are merely a reflection of the framework by which God himself is morally constituted. In other words, all of God's actions proceed from his thoughts, his motives, his purposes, his heart's desires, right? That's the way God operates, and so that's the way we operate. And he says, it is here that we find the conundrum of God's moral culpability for evil must clearly, uh, you know, be resolved here. It is impossible for God to have evil intentions for the evil that he sovereignly ensures will transpire. Uh, there's no contradiction, he says, in saying that he, God, decrees that which he otherwise uh, hates, right? And so, you know, what, you know, what's the conundrum? Well, the conundrum conundrum here is that um, God doesn't have any evil desires, and yet he, uh, you know, he, he uh, wills or he decrees evil. And yet he doesn't have any evil desire. So what's, how do we resolve that particular issue? Right. right. So evil, doing evil is a result of the intentions of our hearts. Our hearts are evil and therefore that's why evil happens. God decrees evil as part of his plan, but God doesn't have any evil uh, intentions right. of his no heart. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's almost a kind of a, a two-tiered system. It's it's a it's a, a meta argument. So, uh, uh, our our evil intentions are evil, or our, our evil actions are evil because our intentions are evil. God kind of looks down from above and he um, he decrees those things. He says this will take place, but he himself isn't of that same category. So his decrees, whether active or inactive or, or passive. Um, they're, they're done by creatures that have a distinct, uh, a separate uh, type of um, of will, a will that An is evil gear, heart. Uh, that is geared towards towards evil, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but God doesn't have that, and so He is able to make those decisions without being evil. And so, uh, is this special pleading? Right. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Because, yeah, because God is special. He's because different. he is transcendent. Yeah. And yeah. he's solo in that. So very much special. Right. And so that's what he says, right? God decrees evil only if he can establish some good and weighty reason for its occurrence right. uh, that could come no other way. Right. And so he decrees evil, but he uses it for good here is what he's getting at. Yeah. Right. And so uh, he, he does say, like, it, it pleased him to crush the messianic servant, putting him to grief, Isaiah 53, 10. Mm. So he's able to be pleased by that evil because it's the, we would say it's the ultimate form, expression of evil in the world. But why does that please him? Because 
out of it, he, he saves his, his creation. He is the source of that. And so he is able to be pleased in that evil action. His decree of it was good and well-intentioned and uh, flowed from a, a heart and a desire that uh, is only good. Right. He utilized evil beings to accomplish that. So even more so, uh, uh, an amazing feature. Uh, so he says, rather delight stems from unsearchable riches of good and uh, necessarily came from the disposition of the father towards his beloved son. Those riches are found in the wondrous work of redemption of both the chosen people and the whole of the cursed cosmos. And I think also this is why God delights in his creation because it's an it's a manifestation uh, uh, of his character, of of his work, of his power, of his giving of life, of his sustainability, of his making uh, beings in the image of God. You know, why is it, um, abs- or, you know, uh, uh, e- even more so good? Why, why, why when man is created, it's even more so? Because it's tied to the character and nature of God. And so that, that's um, what we see uh, 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 the pinnacle at the cross. Right, right. So this is kind of the halfway point. Do we want to? Yeah, let's uh, let's stop here um, and uh, and cover it uh, again. Big topic. Chapter nine is 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 one that we've been waiting on, and we just we just I one mean, of the ones we've been right. Waiting. Oh well, yeah. <laughs> there's there's more to follow, yeah. so it's not like oh it's all downhill from here. But uh, but there's no way we could have done everything uh, that our highlights uh, in our book have done. And so pick up the book. Uh, mm. For chapter nine, yeah, uh, I have, I've, I have secondary characteristics from his primary characteristics <laughs> of, of of just stuff that I've uh, I I had in, in uh, reading this. So this was a, a really interesting and good chapter, especially if you if you don't even agree with it. I think this presents the case on the other side in some of the best light possible and gives you kind of practical applications or, or analogies that. That you could you could pick apart, um, um, but also realize that all analogies fail at some point. Right, right. And so, um, so we, we would we would direct you to the links below, and um, we'll see you next time for the conclusion of uh, of chapter nine here, the challenge of moral responsibility as we go on. Right. Thank you. See you next time.